You are listening to the Cine Club podcast. Welcome to Cine Club episode three. This one has a slightly different format to the previous two episodes. It's a conversation between myself and Ray Newman. Ray's a writer of fiction. He's written a novel, The Gravedigger's Boy, in 2019, and a collection of short stories, Municipal Gothic, in 2022. He also writes on film and various other topics on his website. He gives the link again at the end of the episode, but it makes sense to say it now too. It's precastreinforced.co.uk, as in precast reinforced concrete. In this podcast, we start by discussing Ray's work, then move into a discussion of Joanna Hogg's film, The Eternal Daughter. If you haven't seen that film and intend to, which I do recommend, you might want to pause this part of the discussion. It's not exactly a film with a twist, but if you want to go in completely fresh, it might be a good idea to save the second half of the podcast for later. We start talking about the film around the 30-minute mark. A couple of small disclaimers too. Uh, Firstly, apologies to Stanley Stinter, whose name I initially couldn't remember when referencing his book Last Movies. I tried to edit around it, but it's no good. I have to fess up. No offence intended to Stanley, who I greatly admire. It's a great book. Secondly, there are a couple of audio issues on the podcast. Nothing too major, but things I'd rather weren't captured by the microphone, such as the sound of my dusty old laptop and the trains that run outside my window are audible. Actually, maybe those background noises are appropriately ghostly, considering the subject matter of the podcast. I'm going to pop up once or twice in the episode just to give a little bit of extra context some of the things that Ray and I talk about. Other than that, please enjoy my conversation with Ray Newman. Uh, We start by talking about his book, Municipal Gothic. So it's a collection of short stories, but they are all joined by one central concept. Could you explain what that concept is? Yeah, so I I think the, the first story I wrote that I felt like was part of Municipal Gothic was Modern Buildings in Wessex, which I always describe as being probably the best thing I've ever written and probably the best thing I ever will write. And that was one of those pieces that kind of popped into my head. I think I wrote a very rough draft of it about 15 years ago where I started the idea of a a ghost story or a spooky story set based around an architectural guide. And then at some point in, I think it was um, 2019, it suddenly came into my head that I could combine my love of architecture and say the books of Ian Nairn, like Nairn's London and um, his book Modern Buildings in London with my love of people like M.R. James and sort of more traditional ghost stories. So it's kind of a modernist post-war architectural ghost story. And then from that, I started to realize that lots of other stories I had half written or I had ideas for fit into a similar kind of theme, which was around, I guess, the idea that, yeah, you could look at the modern world and those kind of what I think of as kind of working class settings or everyday ordinary suburban settings, and that those could also be kind of romantic and spooky. So there was a bit of a reaction against uh, so two things. One is I don't think I'm the first person to write urban gothic stories. I know that they've been around for a long time, but in my mind, urban gothic is like sexy vampires in leather coats, kissing each other's, biting each other's necks under neon lights. And mine is a lot more sort of that edge lands, grotty underpasses, sort of much less sexy, basically. Um, so that was what linked them all together. A couple of the stories in the connection collection don't really quite fit that, but there's still this sort of, I guess everyday kind of working class ordinary recognizable settings is what they have in common so you, you write there's an essay at the end of the book where you you discuss this uh one of the, one of the things you, you talk about there is that gothic stories ghost stories do always take place in very old settings manor houses old inns gothic asylums and that of course does make sense because they have the the weight of age about them but you also write about how council houses are very frequently haunted um including the Enfield haunting 
the most famous haunting in British history, it's in a council house. And we write about why that might be. So why do you think there are so many perceived hauntings in council houses? Yeah, so, so I, I always have to sort of preface this with like saying that I grew up in a, in a council house on an estate in Somerset where I spent about 10 years of my childhood. So I'm, I'm sort of speaking from rather than a position of a sort of middle class person peering down. I'm, I'm speaking from experience. And I think it's that partly it's the kind of places that council estates were built. So they're on the edge of town. And the, there's an estate in Bristol called Lockleys that was built on a kind of hill overlooking the city and it should be kind of a lovely setting and, and the estate i'm sure is a very nice place to live but the, the way it's done the wind is constantly howling through the central square and it's a bit like being sort of up on a moor what's the estate near sheffield called gleedless vale i think it's called or gleedless valley that is this similarly kind of just remote location so already you've got that sense of kind of alienation from you're, you're, you're essentially removed from the you know the communities that people um, had lived in before that, you know, in so-called slum clearances, they moved to these kind of new artificial communities. And then you've got the kind of people that live on those estates are often, they're often living in poverty. They've often got other problems going on. I think increasing. So when I was growing up on a council estate, there wasn't a huge problem with drugs if they were around, but it wasn't a colossal problem. What we did have was a lot of burglaries. So my dad worked nights and fairly frequently the back door handle would rattle and my mum would end up sort of sitting on the sofa with a with a, a bat ready in case somebody came in through the door people used to burgle our shed every other night and i got to the point where i sort of stopped sleeping as a teenager because i was constantly waiting like listening out for people in the garden or making you know sort of trying to break into the house so you've just got a lot of people i think slightly on edge and i know, I know there's a kind of resistance to the idea that you know we always talk about council estates as being kind of these nightmare zones or places you want to escape from but I, i'm as resistant to that as i am to the idea that you know you sometimes see on facebook people saying do you remember when we were growing up this is people i was at school with do you remember we would leave our doors open and we were a friendly happy community and i think well that's not quite how i remember it actually and, and the enfield haunting is an interesting one because i think we're, we're in a bit of a golden age of i think three or four different adaptations of that story in the last decade or so um, in various different places, including on TV. And it's clear that that's quite a sort of troubled family and troubled young people, especially living in those kind of contexts, I think. If you buy the idea that poltergeists are a, are a result of psychic energy from teenagers, then it makes sense. If you subscribe to the idea, as I probably do, that it's that teenagers want attention and like causing trouble, then it's the same thing. You know, it's, it's a different manifestation of teenage misbehaviour, potentially, when you get poltergeists in particular, I think. As you mentioned, there's there's several adaptations of the Enfield haunting story. I don't think I've seen any of them, so I don't know if they do play up the idea of it being a working class neighbourhood uh, or not. But as a more general observation, it's not a setting that's often paired with ghost stories or, or horror in literature, in, in film, TV. So there is a strange disconnect there that there's lots of hauntings, perceived hauntings. You know, people report hauntings in these settings, but the stories never take place there. Why do you think that might be? I think there's actually, I suppose, this fairly limited number of templates for, for ghost stories in film. They tend to be so there are quite a few films that you could almost describe as remakes of The Haunting of Hill House. So that was filmed in 1963 as The Haunting, and it's an absolutely brilliant adaptation. Um, and it's been remade. It was remade in the 90s. But also there's a film called the, the Legend of Hell House, I think from 1973 or something like that, which is based on a Richard Matheson story. And it's almost the same story. A group of psychic investigators and a few sensitive psychic type people decamp to a big stately home. And the building is scary. That's kind of the the thing so um and you can look at other examples of haunted haunted buildings on film like um the overlook hotel in the shining 
it's not a Victorian manor house exactly, but it's that sense that as history accumulates in a building, it, it becomes a, a spooky place. And, and I guess they're just more cinematic to look at. The The only adaptation of the Enfield story I've seen is The Conjuring 2, um, which was, I thought, surprisingly good and effective. And the thing about that that I found most fascinating was that they built a recreation of a 1930s London County Council house on a soundstage in Hollywood. So I, I find that absolutely bizarre to think that there were Hollywood technicians studying London County Council plans and saying, yeah, we, we've got to recreate this council house in a, in a, so they could surround it by fog and darkness and so on. But yeah, very, very weird. So it, it does happen, but I think it's that sense that, yeah, ultimately, you know, you can roll a, roll a camera on tracks down a spooky corridor in an old house and you can fill it with statues and suits of armor and dark corners. And that's much harder to do, I guess, in a, in a smaller old suburban home. And in the book, there is one story that engages specifically with film. So I thought we could we could talk about that director's cut. Just a little bit of extra context here. It makes sense to say a bit more about the plot of the story to help make sense of what Ray and I go on to discuss. Director's cut is about a film critic or historian who meets a guy in a pub who claims to have been an actor in the 1970s, appearing in a series of films the protagonist has never heard of and can't prove existed. Oh, well, it was interesting, the inspiration behind that idea, a ghost story based around film. And is there something about film that's potentially a bit spooky that you were trying to exploit? Yeah, I, I think so. Now, I know, I remember exactly where I first had the idea for that story. And it would have been like 30 years ago now. I was at um, Sixth Form College studying, doing media studies as one of my A-levels, which is one of those kind of derided A-levels, you know, Mickey Mouse subjects, as people call it. But I had a particularly brilliant teacher called Steve Benison, who, um, who I occasionally sort of see in Bristol drifting around and I've, I've yet to get up the nerve to say hello to him but he was he was very good at encouraging us to take genre films seriously that to, to study film and television closely so his argument was always that you could study EastEnders as closely as you could study Dickens it's all about your, like, your attitude to the text and one of the things we did there was I, I can't remember exactly how it came about but we had to write a sort of a biography of a, of a fictional character and I wrote a, a biography of a German emigrate filmmaker in Hollywood in the 1930s and as part of that, I got to invent a bunch of plausible sounding 1930s films. And it was just one of the most fun things I'd ever done. So making up imaginary films, when you've read Halliwell's Guides, like a book from cover to cover as a teenager, and, and I don't know if you do this still, but I, I read film guides for fun when I'm sort of comfort reading, when I don't have the brain capacity to do anything else. So I've just got all these ideas in my head about what the, the average, like, a, like ChatGPT, like an AI that's been trained on film guides, I can generate fictional films. And the idea of, you know, casting them, like who would play. So in that story, I have a, the idea that there's a lost version of um, an adaptation of Dan Dare as, as a feature film that was made in the 1970s. And it's like, okay, so who would play Dan Dare in that film and who would play Digby? And that's kind of like a, a sort of a fun um, mental challenge. Or what if they'd made another couple of Hammer Dracula films in the 80s? These are the kind of games I quite enjoy playing. So, And I think it is that sense that every now and then you'll hear about a film and think, why have I never heard of this film before surely like the mandela effect has it just popped into existence or did it did it never exist and yeah i mean you look at something like nosferatu as an example of a particularly creepy feeling film 
as a film, obviously, it's great. But there's also that, that sort of myth that the, the, the lead actor, you know, the people don't know very much about him. And it almost looks like the film is haunted. There's a sense that, like, there is something fundamentally creepy about um, we all, this haunted generation or the scarred for life generation that, like, those scratchy 16mm BBC ghost stories for Christmas just not only are spooky, but feel kind of haunted somehow. I think that, yeah, there's there's a lot of that, I think, that whirls around in my mind when I'm, when I'm thinking about ghost stories in film. I was also, um, I was going to mention this later on in a different context i'm reading a book at the moment uh last movies by stan stanley oh that's terrible i've forgotten his name stanley stinter i think his name is something along those lines and it's about the last films that various famous people saw but it opens with a, a great forward by a writer called erica balsam and she notes that there's a lot of film theory in film studies lots of people have engaged with the idea of film as mummification or the the idea that you capture something on film that no longer exists you know as soon as it's recorded it's already dead that moment is already dead so it does have that interesting uh, slightly creepy quality of preserving a moment in time which, which seems to be part of what the story touches on i think the idea of you know th- this this man that passes away is preserved in the film and actually lives on in the film ties into that quite neatly i think and also uh i wanted to ask about that story that the types of films then that you imagine more hammer horror more carry on films more harry palmer adaptations is that indicative of the kind of film that you're interested in is that your taste i would say these days i've probably branched out but i think um my taste in film as a certainly as a younger man was formed quite a lot by what my dad was enthusiastic about it was one of those things we can connect over he, he would always be very excited if there was a hammer horror film on late or a spaghetti western um he really loves hitchcock so he would get excited about those kind of things so i had this kind of at home this incentive to get excited about i guess things like carry on films as well what were just always on when i was a kid it's this that weird thing that someone was saying the other day we're, I'm, I'm from the last generation that grew up where during the school summer holidays they'd put old black and white Harold Lloyd films on to entertain us we were just watching films from the 20s as a, a matter of course so there's that kind of yeah the canon of stuff that was just on telly and, and I think the reason I picked on those probably for that story is because as well there's an implied continuity so they could have kept making carry-on films forever the fact that they did stop with the last of the original one I think it's carry-on Emmanuel I could be wrong and the last Harry Palmer film before they made those two very bad TV movies in the 90s was The Billion Dollar Brain. It wasn't working. They stopped. But there were more books, so they could have kept going. That sense, I think, of what could have been is almost implied in the the, the idea of the, the series film or the sequel. Yeah, those films with endless sequels like The, the Hammer Draculas. The, the, the only thing that stopped them making those probably is that Hammer sort of collapsed and Christopher Lee got fed up of playing Dracula. But there's no reason they couldn't keep churning them out forever, really. They, they had a formula that was infinitely replicable. And the other story that I was interested in, which actually, when we set this up, I didn't even know you'd rewritten this it's quite new on your website. Um, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right. You have to correct me if not. Scholomance. Mm-hmm. Another quick interruption here for context. This part of the discussion is largely self-explanatory, but just to be clear, this story, Scholomance, takes the form of a review of an incomplete lost film from the silent era in which the writer is haunted by what he suspects may have been horrific subliminal imagery hidden in its shadows and grain. Um, And I think maybe you, you may have answered this question partially already because you mentioned 
Halliwell's film guide. Um, so it's presented in, a, in an interesting way. It's images of pages of a book, a, a film guide or, a, you know, a kind of collection of capsule reviews. So I did, I'd thought of Halliwell's film guide. It Was that the model for that? I, I, just in the last couple of years, I've read Halliwell's film guide. I, I bought the edition I had as a teenager off eBay and read that again. So it's 93 or something. I've read Danny Perry's guide for the film fanatic and his three volumes of cult movies i've read david thompson's book i've just plowed through a bunch of these kind of chunky film guides so i've got the it's a bit of an amalgam of them all i've got this kind of model of how they're written and that that authoritative tone they have where they've got to do the the kind of capsule review pass a bit of judgment get across a lot of erudition and knowledge move on to the next film so i think that's what i was trying to trying to catch in that piece yeah and it's one of the things that makes it work so well i think is that so this review of this lost film scholomance it is sandwiched between scarface and scream and that they are very feasible the way that they're written because you've got that slightly kind of smart ass kind of tone i think you, you know that perfectly so it's it's very feasible that it could be just sandwiched between those two entries in the film uh, and then the uh the lost film that you describe then what what uh what were the inf- inspirations behind that so I, i've got I, th- I think this is probably common to a lot of writers but i have these ideas that i keep coming back to and up to a point it's just christ man get some fresh ideas and then you push past that like that joke about with them um, if you make the same mistake often enough it turns into jazz in music or whatever is that you just push past it and go no no, no i'm creating a, a universe of references and i've got i've got my fear and the, when these people read all my stories together and they see multiple references to scholomant then then it will look like i did it very deliberately but it's just that i I read about Scholomance, which is the, the sort of a mythical college of, of um, dark magic that only takes a certain number of students every year and, and one of them has to stay at the end of the year and pay with their soul. And that sort of lodged in my mind. It's not the kind of story I write, but it's a useful thing whenever I need a kind of old mythological reference in a story. So I've also written a story that hasn't been published anywhere yet about a um, romantic poet in Milan in the 19th century, which is a bit out of my usual comfort zone. And he's great epic poem in multiple volumes is Scholomance as well. So I've sort of got this idea that I might keep coming back to it. And it just struck me as the kind of thing in the 1920s when they hadn't quite worked out what the horror film was, that they would adapt classic novels or sort of vaguely gothic poems. And they hadn't quite latched on. So it was only the success of Dracula and Frankenstein in the early 30s that really crystallised what horror films were about. Yeah, and it's it's a sort of German expressionist film as well. So like you mentioned with Nosferatu before, I also thought of the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, that idea of in a quite intangible way, in a way you can't quite describe. They just feel off. There's something about them that feels very creepy. And also thought of Haxan, of course, with the devil connection there. These films are very, they're very particular um, in the 1920s. I also wondered if you had read the novel Flicker. Was that an inspiration? I, I meant I should have mentioned it earlier. Actually, I read it as a teenager, probably before I did my media studies A level. And I reread it in my 20s when I enjoyed it a lot less, I think. But when I read it as a teenager, it blew my mind because it was the first sort of proto Dan Brown almost in terms of that sort of conspiracy theory. You know, there's there's something going on below the surface of our of our of our everyday lives that we don't understand and connections. And yeah, I remember finding it really sort of profoundly brilliant when I read it as a, as a teenager. And that has fictional films in, doesn't it? And sort of imaginary studios and directors. And it does, yeah. But like yours, it also weaves in real examples. So it does discuss the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and things like that. It's funny because I reread it in the summer. I read it first 
just about 10 years ago and I reread it in the summer and I enjoyed it a lot less as well but it, it's it's great it's a great page turner and it's it's really it's really fun but it is incredibly silly as well but I think he does get is it Theodore Rojak is the name of the author which I didn't say he does get to that thing of film just feeling haunted and he you know in a, in a way he over explains that that there is actually in the novel there actually is something under the surface of the film so where you feel you're seeing subliminal images or the film's moving in a strange way there actually is a hidden image in the film I actually think in a way it's more interesting the idea that you feel you've seen something extra but you can't explain it is is quite a bit more creepy but yeah it's, it's, it is an interesting book it's also it's incredibly sexist which I kind of forgot and it's it's ridiculous on that level yeah. Mike White didn't resonate with me as much on the second read through possibly I think I might have spent 10 years telling my partner you must read this book you must read this book and then I reread it and was like actually it's fine you can you can leave it <laughs> yeah it's uh it, it was yeah sort of jaw-dropping I, I, I completely blanked that bit out of my mind I don't know why uh I didn't remember that uh but it, yeah it's probably it's worth reading I read it on holiday and that's a good setting I think to read it you, you mentioned a bit about modern buildings in in Wessex already but they're what those have in common then Scholomance and that story having an experimental form or a form that's actually taken from a, a different kind of uh of writing so the uh architectural guide or the the film guide that obviously appeals to you what what's interesting for you about that so i think it's partly that i've always been a pastiche so when i started writing my very first kind of serious efforts at writing were pastiches of sherlock holmes stories i've always found it's like a comfortable thing to do is pastiching other people because i guess these days you fan fiction came along a bit after i started writing as a kid but um it's that kind of comfortable territory like learn to write by playing with other people's characters and concepts and then eventually you'll find your own voice and it's almost a similar thing, I think, with those formal experiments, which is, okay, so the form is decided for me. That's one problem I don't have to deal with. And the only problem I've got to deal with there is how closely, how good are my skills at reading and understanding that form to be able to replicate it? So having read Nairn's London and his uh, modern buildings in London over and over again, I knew the form and I knew his voice pretty well. And anytime I was in doubt, I could grab a copy off the shelf and say, how would he describe a modern church? And so at no point did I quote him but it was just trying to sort of channel his, I think if you've ever seen any of this, some of his documentaries are on iPlayer. They've been there for a while from the from the 70s. And he's got this kind of pretty dreadful, kind of irascible, I think he said smart asked earlier about the, the, the imaginary film critic in um, the Scholomant story. It's a similar thing. It's this kind of confidence that comes with, I don't know, public school, grammar school, 1950s kind of patrician. I know best. And, and Ian Ned in particular will, will look at a building everyone else loves and say, it's absolutely dreadful. I'm going to tell you why. Or I'll look at a building everyone else hates and say, this is a wonderful building, actually, and you're all idiots. And there's a kind of confidence in expressing his opinion. So there was there was some of that inhabiting a character who's it's sort of not much like me, I guess, and actually finding that voice, someone else's voice, and just using it like an impressionist almost. But also it's because ghost stories are, there are millions of them, and loads of them are very cliched, and there's almost kind of a, people perceive there as being a formula to them. So just anything you can do to break that formula. And the new collection I'm working on, I'm conscious that everyone liked modern buildings in Wessex and that another story in the collection, an oral history of the Greater London Exorcism Authority is a similar kind of formal experiment. And I feel like I've sort of got to include a few of those. So I, I'm trying not to put myself under too much pressure to, you know, here's a ghost story in the form of a back of a cornflakes packet and here's a ghost story in the form of a council leaflet or whatever. But um, there are a couple in there that have naturally emerged. I've got one that's a reference sort of in the style of Ian MacDonald's book about the Beatles revolution in the head and it's kind of a Beatles ghost story about so in that case it's a haunted Mellotron tape so I probably am you know it's not quite stuck in a rut but I've got my themes I return to I think so 
yeah, I, I think it's just something to break up the monotony of the traditional ghost story form, I suppose. And I, I think it does have a similar effect in that story as well, because because of the tone being quite detached in a sense and, and unemotional, that as the sort of sinister qualities of these buildings start to affect the narrator, it, it's particularly powerful. Okay, and then I also thought we could talk about some of your nonfiction writing specifically about film. So I was reading your piece, Goodbye Aquarius, which you, you write as uh, liner notes for a Blu-ray box set that doesn't exist. And that would include films such as Twisted Nerve and Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny and Gurley and uh, Dracula AD 1972. So I've seen a few of those. I haven't seen all of the films that you write about. But So what is it that links them then? If that box set existed, what would be the theme that unites those films? I guess that's why it wouldn't ever be a real box because it's a bit abstract but i was quite inspired by the um severin films collection of folk horror the na- name of which i can never remember but that does a good job of putting together a lot of films that are only tangentially right almost in terms of mood the connected and those stories i think it's this sense of britain especially london at the end of the 1960s which is this a modern city or a modern country emerging from a very traditional historic country and and so certain images recur in some of these films. So you get like people racing sports cars through up against London Wall, through the tower blocks of the city of London, and then into the crooked little Victorian streets, which is where the, the all abandoned, bombed out churches. So it's that mix of the old world and the new world, um, which is slightly uncomfortable. And I think the particular thing that I, I picked up in that blog post was the, the sense of sort of sickness. So it was, you've got the swinging 60s and everyone's very excited. Great news, everyone. We're now... We're now allowed to have sex. We've invented sex for the first time. There's a point not long after that, and I think it's probably obvious to connect it with things like the, you know the end of the the summer of love and Altamont and the you know the death of the hippie era. But suddenly, sex is actually even though these films are ostensibly titillating and swinging and a bit sexy, the sex is quite queasy and uncomfortable. And so, in Goodbye Gemini, um, there's a suggestion of incest between a brother and sister, which you know, and then the sex leads them to committing murder. Mumsy Nanny, Sonny and Girly, the sex is incredibly bizarre. Like it might be incestuous. It's and certainly if it's not incestuous, they're role-playing incest and but it's not quite clear whether they actually are all related to each other or whether the two children are actually children. I mean, it's so bizarre. And and then I guess in the most tame of them, Dr- the Dracula films are, you know, they're hammer being swinging about seven or eight years too late. But there's still this kind of sense of, you know, it really amplifies the sense that um that vampirism is a is a form of sex and that the the swinging young Londoners who want to become vampires it's because it's kind of it's the latest kink or the latest perversion you know you could use that word kinky in that sort of 60s sense of you know something that's just different and adventurous and pushing the boundaries I think um yeah and you can just keep listening things like Tam Lin which has had a bit of a revival recently the Roddy McDowell's that was the only film he directed but certainly a bit of a he put a lot of effort into it, it was a bit of a flop Ian McShane sort of folk horror and against a similar vibe, it's that sort of um, swinging London meets ageless sex demons, you know, this kind of thing. It's, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of overlapping things rather than one theme that ties them all together, I'd say. I was actually just thinking that um, oh, those films are definitely peculiarly British, but even something like Bonnie and Clyde, which has also got that end of the 60s feel to it. Sex in, in that film is not something groovy and loose. It's a like, very, very fraught and difficult thing to get over. So may- maybe that is something of that time. 
I was just going to say, actually, I'm going to look it up about that book. Okay, Stanley Stinter, so uh, not Stinter, as I said before, Stanley Stinter's book, Last Movies. He writes about John F. Kennedy's last movie. And one of the sources that you can use to figure that out is there was a projectionist who was employed by the White House who recorded all of the screenings in a kind of logbook and it was employed for successive presidents. So because of that, we can now say that Richard Nixon watched Twisted Nerve in the White House, which is just so bizarre. Yeah, very weird. He should have had a podcast. I don't think everyone would have, would have loved it. It's just a brilliant choice. So that the weirdest film, you know, the, the most uncomfortable kind of combination of, yeah, sickness and sex, like you say, that's, uh, that would be Richard Nixon's thing. And the other the other piece of yours that I thought was really interesting, uh, which, which clearly touches on some of the same preoccupations as as municipal gothic, was about new towns in film. This is something I I had never really thought about in the British context. I got really interested at one point in this in French cinema and had this idea that I was going to write this long article about new towns like the the Bon Lieu uh, outside Paris. But of course, I could never actually do that because I don't know enough about French society, but it's, it's quite noticeable in, in French film. It's a bit more layered in terms of class because there are problematic, very poor, crime-ridden banlieues, the kind of suburbs outside Paris, and then there are very posh ones. So Eric Romare makes My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, and it's like centre parks. Mm-hmm. But then some of the others are these kind of uh, really horrendous places. But, but you've kind of done that piece for, for Britain. So you write about what Newtowns sort of stand for in, in British cinema. What do they stand for? What I had was sort of a collection of films that I noticed had Newtowns in and people suggested other ones that I'm, you know, I had to see. I've been interested in Newtowns. It's a sort of a, a, a weird crossover from the work I've done writing about pubs and beer with my partner because we got very into sort of town planning and, and uh, new estates and Newtowns as part of that and then the interest kind of crossed over into film. And the thing that I saw emerging there was this, firstly, th- there's the immediately post all this kind of optimism about them that we're going to get rid of the slums we're going to rebuild our society we've learned to work together as a society for the first time we're we're suddenly blind to class we're going to elect the labor government and we're going to source out the state of the country and build everyone you know homes fit for heroes which is a phrase from actually post-world war one and then what you sort of see in films is this portrayal of newtowns as a kind of weird phenomenon so the one of the most interesting examples for me was quatermass 2 which they filmed, uh, I, I think it was Hemel, one of the new towns, when it was still under construction because it gave them this kind of ready-made, a lot of production value for very lim- little money of a sort of abandoned, spooky town on a, on a hillside with all these half-built houses. And the, the idea there is that the, the new town is literally an alien colony. It's where the aliens are, are housing their workers who are building their, producing their goop or whatever it is they need to survive in their alien factory. And it's it's the eeriness and the uneasiness of this town, which is plonked in the middle of nowhere. And I think something I say in that piece is that it sort of plays on the idea that a town should not just appear overnight. You shouldn't be able to build a new town. A town should evolve from a, a hamlet to a village to a town to a city even but it shouldn't just suddenly appear that means every building in the town is of the same age and they're all new and you also see them then crop up in things like an episode of danger man which kind of evolved into the prisoner where he wakes up in what he thinks is an english new town and it turns out to be a spy training facility in siberia or somewhere like that so it's like this idea that they're just uncanny places they're like a, a simulation of an english town rather than a real english town uh, and then what you start to get into in later films so in, in that article, I've tried to represent, I suppose, that there are positive portrayals of new towns and there are portrayals of new towns which play on that uncanny nature. So things like in um, I Start Counting, which is one of the great discoveries for me of the last few years, and I think has been well known among connoisseurs for a long time. When the BFI put it out on Blu-ray, suddenly lots of people were able to see it for the first time and it's mind-blowingly good. 
but that plays on this idea that it's like a happy hunting ground for serial killers because it's all these young people dumped into a town in the middle of nowhere and in you know essentially in like moorland or fields all around and you you can treat it as almost like you said center parts earlier but like a playground for psychopaths and that's a similar vibe you get in the offense um the sydney lumet film so yeah they're these kind of uncanny unsettling places cut off from civilization and, and often weirdly kind of a bit empty and spooky and abandoned i think because they haven't fully filled up or they haven't fully been populated or because people are um instead of being out on the town at night they're back home watching tv leaving the streets kind of empty so yeah just there's a lot of uncanny potential in them i think okay and then uh it, maybe we could start to think about the eternal daughter there This is very much not a municipal gothic film. It's a, a gothic gothic film. But the, I thought it would be interesting to talk about with you because it it is a ghost story, kind of. But then again, it's not really. It's not. There's not really a ghost, uh, as in an actual spirit. It's uh, the 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 building that they're in is sort of haunted in, in different ways, or the character is haunted in different ways. So that's what got me thinking about it to discuss with you. It's directed by. Joanna Hogg, do you do you know her work? Have you seen any further films? I'm embarrassed to say that I've been too busy watching all the really crappy Hammer Dracula films and bizarre spaghetti westerns. Um, I will after this watch more because I think I had in my mind that they were all going to be films about um, middle class people struggling with things, which is not my my favourite genre. Basically, that that is accurate. <laughs> they are all like that, but um, I I do like. I like all of her films actually and the souvenir the two souvenir films that she made they're, they're possibly connected to this in, in some way so the characters have the same names and, and one of them is a filmmaker so it's not a sequel or, or anything like that and you definitely don't need to know the souvenir films to watch this but it's just this interesting it's in a, a kind of cinematic universe potentially with, with the souvenir films and there, there are some things in, in this uh, the, the, the genre elements are not in any of her other films but something like the kind of passive aggressive uh, encounters at the hotel reception that's quite typical of, of a lot of her films so, you know, I read what an interview she did around the release of the film and she definitely referred to it as a genre film and i think seems to her mind she was like i'm making if not a horror film i'm i'm making a ghost story seems to be her so she certainly seems to conceive of it that way which i think when you come to it from a genre perspective having watched quite a lot of proper horror or, or ghost story horror films or ghost stories you're like it's, it's not that genre but i guess by the standards of a an arts filmmaker or, or a sort of non-commercial filmmaker it, it maybe is yeah very genre yeah it's, it's genre by her standards definitely yeah uh, the other films are, are not in any conventional genre it does have some genre trappings though uh, so it sort of starts like a like i would expect a, a ghost story to start so you know it's a, we're in an isolated location with a lot of fog i mean a lot a lot of fog a uh, very very foggy film and bare trees and this long driveway to reach the hotel so there's a lot of it is is to make us understand how isolated we are and even things like there is wi-fi in the hotel but you have to only be in a certain place so there's there's an extra you know modern sense of being cut off that you don't even have internet access reliably there and even a kind of well you'll you'll be able to tell me actually as you're you're more familiar with ghost stories than i am i think but it's actually something i associate with slasher films but the kind of cassandra figure in the taxi it's a taxi driver sort of says i don't go to that hotel on a, a dark winter night uh, and of course, it is a dark winter night, so kind of warning them that something something bad is going to happen. Is is that a trope in ghost stories? I think it 
probably is. It, it, I feel like you get it in things like the the woman in black, um, which is a sort of modern Victorian ghost story, and you, you get it in some Mr. James stories. The thing that it made me think of most is in Dracula when Jonathan Harker is riding to Dracula's castle, and I think there's an old lady in the carriage he's riding he gets off at some point on on the route and an old lady sort of grabs him and gives him a, a crucifix and some rosary rosary beads or something and says something like you know you need these because the dead travel fast or something like that if you're dropped off in the middle of nowhere you get a warning from the from the carriage driver or whatever or it's definitely some kind of reference to to previous previous genre fiction there I think. so so as it starts in the, the first kind of quarter of an hour or something it, it, it feels quite typical i thought one of the things that's quite striking about it then is it actually takes ages for anything actually conventionally creepy to happen so that's that's one way maybe that she's uh that she's flipping the script slightly but the it, it still feels quite creepy to me i don't know if you have the same experience even that it's very uneventful for quite a long time it, it, it has a, a slightly strange creepiness to it even before things strange things start happening did you also feel that yeah and i think that is quite a common trick in in some of the best ghost stories on film is they're almost a game of suspense so they set up that this place feels creepy you've had all the cues that there is going to be some kind of supernatural event and then it's about making you wait for them so a lot of it is making you look at dark corridors or dark windows or empty spaces and making you worry that something's going to appear there or you're going to see a face or a figure or there was a joke a while ago on twitter where somebody said most ghost stories can be summarized as what if there was a guy there and it's a very accurate reflection of the, the real world situations in which we see ghosts when we're left when we haven't quite got enough information to understand what we're looking at and our primitive brains will interpolate uh, it's safest if you're not if you're not sure if there's a predator there it's safest to assume there is one and see one and be ready to fight or fly so it's it, it sort of um, replicates that real world experience i think and, and in this film there's a huge amount of just long dark corridors and her walking along corridors in the dark and you thinking something's going to happen she gets to the end the kettle doesn't work she comes back along the corridor but you know you've been the whole time you've been slightly holding your breath and that that happens in quite in things like the haunting as well the 1963 film there are quite a lot of scenes in that when actually nothing happens but you waiting for something to happen is where the fear comes from there's also maybe just the, the that slow pace there is something just kind of creepy about how slow and, and of course quiet because we're in this uh, empty hotel so there's something there as well but also i was thinking about the, the camera movement the camera is um not in a conventional way, but uh, because it, it still feels very slow, but the camera is actually moving quite a lot, not in a way that actually creates any sense of pace. It's just slowly moving, it, it actually kind of floating around. Um, so the, the camera itself maybe has a bit of a, a ghostly feel at times because there's lots of presumably steady cam shots. The other thing that this film is is kind of notable for is the, the double performance from Tilda Swinton, starring Tilda Swinton and Tilda Swinton. So I was wondering, wondered how you responded to that does that work for you uh, i thought it worked remarkably well i think at the start i thought oh no we're, we're all in for um tilda swinton in old lady makeup but because she plays the part of the the mother the older character she doesn't play it as an old lady she plays it as a you know someone you might recognize as, as a, a real human being so there is a little bit of makeup it's mostly costume and sort of details of the performance and, and i think the contrast she establishes really well between the, her performance as the younger character who's much more sort of um flighty and twitchy and anxious and and sort of moves a lot more and then the, the older character has a bit more sort of a stately manner but it's not sort of hobbling along pretending to be you know mrs brown's boys with a with a curly wig on and a walking stick so it's partly a really brilliant performance but also it adds totally adds to the sense of the uncanny um so one of those classic sort of themes in um 
weird stories is the idea of doubles and clones and doppelgangers and um and yeah it adds a whole other element of sort of oddness to the things that you are subconsciously well you're very consciously aware of it but even if you sort of forget that it's the same actress you're subconsciously aware of the fact that you're looking at this one person talking to herself um which of course you know without spoiling things sort of sets up the the the, the way the film ends as well i think yeah I, I agree i thought it worked really well it could potentially be gimmicky i know eddie murphy or someone like that when he plays every every member of the family kind of different but um it doesn't actually feel gimmicky at all and yes that sense of the uncanny i also thought that uh and, and particularly the idea that the mother-daughter relationship it can be quite strange i don't know if you've ever had this experience that for me as I'm getting older I notice it more see a photo of myself and I see I think I really look like my dad that is slightly uncanny experience but it's really amplified because it is literally her you know they do look exactly the same that is what she'll look like when she's an old lady because it's the same same actress I listened to a podcast where Tilda Swinton and Joanna Hogg were interviewed and you know like you're saying she doesn't put on the old lady voice uh, and she was saying it's it's the same voice so that they she just delivered it in exactly the same way it didn't change the tone of voice or anything deliberately to for, for various reasons but that is one of the, the good things about it is it, it doesn't feel like her doing an old lady voice so i thought one of the things thinking about you know what what is haunting this film or what is haunting julia i do think one of the things that's haunting her is dealing with aging one thing i, I was thinking about I've, I've watched it twice now and the first time i just really enjoyed the passive aggressive customer service and thought it was quite well observed um it's 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 definitely true as anyone I think who work in works in kind of service roles like that would probably agree. I, I've definitely had this experience that when it's quieter, you're less willing to do any work or go to any effort. Should really be the opposite. Uh, but it's, you, you could be doing nothing, but there's this one person who's bugging you. So it's a good observation of that. But I was also thinking about, you know, beyond that, why why is she so dismissive of Julia and seems to kind of resent her straight away? I wonder if part of it is just because she's old, right? She... She probably looks at her and thinks, look at this this sad old lady on holiday with her mum. And she takes a, an in, a real interest in the receptionist. So um, she seems to be very interested in her boyfriend picking up in, in her car, for example. And there's that shot where we see Julia in the reflection in the compact mirror. So we've got this association with the receptionist and kind of youth and beauty and glamour. And Julia may be feeling quite far removed from that as she's older. Is, it, is that something you picked up on, the idea of ageing being part of the ghostly quality of the film? Yeah, I think related to that, I think I jotted down was this concept of preemptive grief, which is something I've not heard of until a couple of years ago. It's something that they used to talk about when you have relatives who you know are dying and you start grieving for them before they've gone because you know it's going to happen. And there's been, you know, a, a couple of sort of people have been close to have died in recent years and that sense of knowing that they're not going to be around and you find yourself sort of almost role-playing in your mind what's going to happen when they're gone and weirdly it means when they do go it's it has much less impact because you've already kind of lived through it over and over again you've catastrophized essentially about what will happen when they go and i could just sort of see at various points in the film i happen to watch it my dad's been in hospital the last couple of weeks he's out now and he's kind of on the mend hopefully but i've been going through some of that a little bit as i was really really recently so the film was quite resonant and it's that sense of Julia being with her mother and looking at her mother and almost, you know, knowing that she's going to be mourning her. And, and in a sense that her mother is a ghost who's already here, that she's having to live with and have dinner with um, her mother, who's already kind of a ghost to her. So, uh, yeah, I was I was sort of picking up on that the whole way through, I think. And, and obviously there are those games that are played with every now and then we cut to a version of, um, I wish I could remember the, the mother's name. Do we know the mother's name? Uh, yeah, I think it's Roz. 
Roz, yeah. Um, we see suddenly she looks much older in one shot and then she goes back to looking not quite so old. And I was like, oh, was that, an, was that an illusion or is this, we're actually seeing reality and we work it out by the end that the chronology is complicated. It's almost a jump scare, like, oh, she's suddenly very old, aging, hair terrifying. So yeah, I, th I think you're onto something. This, this shot isn't there of her holding her hand. It, it looks like a much older hand. And uh, I was then thinking, it, it, in the next sequence, I was looking at Roz's hands and thinking, I swear that she didn't have like quite such old lady hands in the previous show and she, she doesn't so it's uh it's quite well done the other thing that's an interesting um not game but she it, playing around a bit with film grammar i think to to create that sense of the uncanny perhaps they they don't share the same frame for the vast majority of the film there's there's only a couple of moments where they share the frame uh, and I, I really notice it that the first time that they do it, it kind of stands out because you think oh they haven't been in the frame before uh, in, in there's an interview with Joanna Hogg in Sight and Sound a couple of months ago and, and they filmed it so that there isn't anybody sitting at the other side of the table so you might set it up that Tilda Swinton has somebody there to look at at least and and uh, and deliver lines to but they decided to do it with a kind of just an empty space on the other side of the table uh, which is an interesting choice and, and maybe it's not going to have any tangible effect on the film but it's an interesting choice that it feels appropriate I think. So they don't share the frame and then when they do it's it's in a mirror that means that it sort of breaks the 180 degree rule so then when we go back they've slipped around the, the wrong way round so the space is kind of distorted they've moved to the wrong side of the, the room sort of from how we've just seen them. I thought that was a really good, yeah like like you say like a jump scare you, you notice it, it's, it's jarring because it breaks their, their kind of unwritten rules of well, I suppose they are written in some places, but it breaks continuity editing rules, sort of. So it's jarring in, in that kind of jump cut way. And the other theme that, which is, is tied to what you were saying about preemptive grief, I think, but there's also the anxiety in the film about how Julia, as an artist, as a filmmaker, is going to be able to tell her mother's story. I think that's one of the things in terms of the, it's to do with grief, but it's also this idea that the the task of summing up her mother's story is, is something that's haunting her. That becomes a kind of ghostly presence in itself. It's it's discussed quite a bit in the film, but in quite an oblique way. She never quite sort of says why it's so difficult for her or anything like that. What, what did you make of that, that theme of representing her mother in her art? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's a thing, certainly a thing I've, had to deal with from time to time where I've said to my parents, oh, I'd really like to like get you to write some of these stories down or record you talking about them. And it feels rude to do it because you're basically saying, so that when you're dead, I've still got it. And it's it's almost a matter of politeness to say, oh, well, we can do it another time. Because as long as you've got another time when you can do it, then they're going to live forever. When, once you start trying to document somebody's life, you're acknowledging that that life is finite. So you're, there's, you're sort of introducing death into the conversation. And there are definitely points in the film where my reaction to Julia's attempts to sort of, you know, there's a scene when her mum is lying on the bed and starts talking and she reaches over and sort of quietly starts recording on her phone. And my reaction was like, oh, that's a bit distasteful. Like, let her talk. Can't you just listen instead of trying to exploit it? And that was my reaction to it, was that it was exploitative. But of course, that recording and telling of the story is also profoundly respectful. It's a way of honouring her mother and like, you know, reflecting that her mother existed and, and giving her sort of an internal life, etc. So, but it feels in the moment quite exploitative. So yeah, it reflects something, which is, I guess, the struggle that a lot of artists have. It's like turning your own life and your own family and the tragedies you might have in your family into, into material or hashtag content is sort of quite, you know, controversial and difficult, I think.
Yeah, she does say something along the lines of "I don't have the right," doesn't she? Um, this idea that it's it, it, it is her story in a sense, in that she figures in it in it because she's uh, Ross's daughter. But then again, it's not her story to tell it in a, in a way. And yeah, I agree. That moment is really interesting. It does feel like she's kind of she's sort of stealing something in a way by surreptitiously recording it. Uh, the other thing it made me think about is, um, and I, I'm going to say this as if it's a universal experience, it might say more about me, but I think there's something about when you're younger, you really only know your parents in relation to yourself. So obviously when you're a child, you, you don't think about your parents having a life be- before you were born really. But I, actually, I think for me, that's continued surprisingly late in life. I've not really asked my parents that much about their life outside of me being around. Um, and like you say, I would like to, but then it sort of feels a bit morbid like you've got to get that information while you you still can part of that that's obviously difficult for Julia in the film is that that might mean that you've got to ask them about difficult times in their life and you've got to acknowledge that they would have you know they would have been sad in their life they would have gone through difficult things and um but that's quite difficult to to face I think there's something about the idea that because she's older right Rose is older so she's vulnerable that that adult and child thing reversing but it, it means that a parent might hate the idea of a child suffering and do anything to avoid it and then when you have an elderly parent you might feel that way yourself so I feel that that was also a big part of it and why she's blocked telling the story is there are parts of it that she doesn't want to acknowledge because she has to acknowledge that her mum has suffered I thought that was very well observed and, and well done in the film and one thing I, I reacted to and again I say reacted because it wasn't I didn't think it through particularly but I had an overall impression of Julia as frustratingly passive aggressive so the, the the conversation with the the rude receptionist who you know um, we, know, we know at the end had her own stuff going on and maybe wasn't such a bad person after all but she's pretty pretty nasty but Julia's reaction is just to be more and more obsequious with her while also just trying to say will you just do the thing I need doing and instead of being assertive about it she's got that kind of sorry don't want to didn't want to bother you very sort of obsequious manner and she almost uses that with her mother so it's tell me your stories oh i didn't want i'm sorry i didn't mean to make you tell me your stories i'm so sorry i made you tell me this this difficult story keep going i'm recording now so it's like she wants the story but she doesn't want to look like she wants the story was kind of how i reacted to it so there's a sort of a frustrating we say a tension between her desire to to extract the story from her mother because it's because it's gold it's good material and her desire to be I guess told that it's fine I want to do it and her mum is never going to say I want to tell you she's like I don't mind doing it but she doesn't want to do it particularly so yeah there's there's definitely a tension in their relationship around that I think that Julia Julia doesn't know what she wants or, or wants her cake and eat it she wants to get the story without her mum at any point getting upset she has all the emotion without any emotion yeah absolutely and I guess wants to make a, a film that will be emotionally affecting at the end but without herself being emotionally affected too badly by bring the story together oh that, that was the other thing I was going to mention when we were talking about the creepy corridors i'm going way back here but i was thinking about the green lights which i think are exaggerated but are drawn from just that's what you get in hotels right it's fire exit sign and i think they're probably lit to accentuate it but it reminded me of vertigo i was thinking about the the use of green in vertigo and particularly that quite lurid green scene the the love scene where she comes out of the the bathroom and you get that really over the top green glow uh, and that, that's an interesting link in a way I, I don't know if it is supposed to be a nod to vertigo but um similar sort of thing about it's a go- kind of a ghost story but then again it's not really and hitchcock's maybe 
more deliberately using that as a red herring. I don't think that's exactly what Joanna Hogg is up to. But uh, what what Scotty's haunted by in Vertigo isn't actually a ghost. It's something far bigger and, and less tangible. I thought that was a really interesting link. And of course, they've both got their preoccupation with, with death in different ways. So they're both kind of facing up to death. And doubles and doppelgangers and, and, and in a complicated way, him Novak playing two different roles, although it turns out to be the same person playing two different roles. Yeah. But that thing about doubles and, and doppelgangers being unsettling as well, there's this, yeah, I think it's uh, definitely, I, I sort of have this feeling that you could pick almost any film and, and say, here's how this film uh, connects to Vertigo. I feel like Vertigo's got so much in it that you could probably do that with almost anything. But yeah, I, I think you're probably right that the, the connections are more than accidental. The green light struck me as interesting because I've, I sort of noticed quite a few things in the film that I thought if a, a pure genre director had done them, they would be cheesy. But because I think this is a director who is playing with, the tropes and referencing them rather than doing genre she gets away with it but the, the fog the obvious smoke machine fog at one point outside on what looks like otherwise quite a nice day sort of drifting past the window is quite a sort of low budget bbc tv effect and the green light is very as you say over the top actually if you think of more respected sort of genre classical sort of horror stories or ghost stories they don't tend to do that so the shining again that's sort of an art director slumming it in genre but that you don't get that kind of creepy lighting that you get that very flat clean lighting and in things like the changeling the lighting there is very sort of that's almost you know it's meant to feel almost kind of autumnal and flat and real quite desaturated so this is actually quite amped up in that respect which considering how low-key the the haunting in quote marks is uh is is well, it's almost a joke i suppose And then by the end, I don't know if you were able to completely unpick the chronology. I, I was confused as to whether we were seeing bits of an earlier visit to the hotel mixed in with a, a more recent visit, which is sort of where I got to in the end, is that we were seeing memories. The The line that I wrote down that I liked best that I think is a, a pure ghost storyline is that's what rooms do, they hold memories. But if we weren't seeing that and we were seeing one visit in which her mother was not really there, then the receptionist shouldn't have interacted with her and so I couldn't quite make sense of it as a in purely logical terms I don't think that matters particularly in a in, a, um, in this kind of story whether it's a, a spooky story or, a, or an emotional story I, I also couldn't quite figure out the chronology it's, it's not cut and dry is it um I, when I watched it the second time I did think oh look out for clues I, things like I always remember um when I was a teenager watching Fight Club but obviously you find out that the two, two characters are really one and there are little, little things like they got on a bus and only one of them pays and there are kind of clues there like that there isn't really anything like that so like you say about the receptionist interacting w with Roz at first it sort of seems like she's not and she's only talking to Julia I thought aha but then she comes back and she just like she does she just kind of directly speaks to Roz so there aren't anything like that so I think you're right. It's a mixture of uh, a mixture of two different visits, at the least two, and then possibly some scenes from the film that Julia writes, which may or may not be faithful recreations of of the visit. But I quite like that about the film that there isn't there isn't one clear thing. Oh, she was dead all along. It's not as simple as that, and that's one of the things that that's a strength. I think. Is there anything else in particular that you wanted to pick out and discuss? I've just mentioned the music, so I'm not a great expert in music but i've found it really it was really classic ghost story music and i feel like it was quite similar to some of the music in those um, 1970s bbc ghost stories for christmas and my partner was sort of sitting next to me while i was watching it i don't know playing stardew valley on her tablet or something but she does know about music and i said to her after a while 
why does this music feel spooky? And she, without looking up, just said, it's chromatic and it doesn't resolve. And I think there is something about the music being very well chosen to just leave us kind of unsettled and on edge, which is like real classic genre stuff. Um, and it is quite like the, the classical music that Kubrick uses. He selects to form the soundtrack of The Shining. It's a lot of sort of 20th century avant-garde music that has that you know, unsettling, atonal quality, I think. I think the music, the music is well chosen and quite on the nose for a ghost story, but also feels very sort of uh, clean and classy. I think in sort of contemporary. Yeah, I agree. It, it first comes in with all of those um, things I listed at the beginning, doesn't it? So it's it's when we're getting all of the fog and it's it's getting dark and and all of these things. The music comes in then. It did feel very classy to me as well. But yeah, no, I think I think it is very effective. So I don't know. I don't know what they're chromatic and doesn't resolve. I don't really know what those mean. Do you know? Not particularly. No. I think it's that it's that the, the which scales you use which make the difference between you sounding kind of um, musically satisfying but a bit cheesy and you know that kind of sense of modern classical music often ends up sounding it just doesn't quite settle and you never get the satisfaction of a, of a sort of final note or chord it just kind of drifts and it ends in the wrong place so again the uncanny it just feels sort of un- unsettling and uncanny the only other small thing I noticed I don't know if you'd have picked up on this because you're not as immersed in this world as I am was that the book Julia was reading at the breakfast table in one of the shots was I think the Armada book of ghost stories which is a, like a collection of ghost stories for children from about 19 it was, it was a series of them I don't know 30 or something and she's reading one from I think about 1985 I was trying to work out exactly which edition but I thought that was an interesting little again nod to the genre uh, status of the film and, and a, a very clear reference to that I want you to at least think this is a ghost story even if it isn't yeah I didn't notice that I didn't actually that's interesting the the other book that she is reading which Joanna Hogg has mentioned that uh Martin Scorsese who I don't know if Scorsese did you see his name in the credits of this one he, I didn't I think he did I'm sure I read some of it he was an executive producer on it or something like that. yeah I think that's right he was on the souvenir films he, he has suggested to uh, to read They by Rudyard Kipling uh, have, have you read that I haven't no I, I, I saw a reference to it in, in an interview and I thought hmm, I feel like that's something I'm, I'm meant to have read but no I haven't yeah I, I read it today so you, you can find the whole thing online it's not a particularly uh, long story and it's 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 not the basis of the film at all in a, in a direct way but it, it's an interesting companion piece definitely um, and it, it does deal with the idea of ghosts and grief in, in a really interesting way and actually there, there is one bit towards the end which is is really moving I, I thought it was really moving and kind of took me by surprise it's got some dodgy Roger Kipling racism in there every now and again but it's it's quite good anyone that's watched the film that, that could be a good bit of extra reading because it, it's the, the atmosphere is, is similar I was just going to ask you, because um, you mentioned you're writing a, a new collection of stories. Are they um, are they unified by a theme in the same way as municipal gossip? I don't think so. I think I'm going to give myself a break on this one and let myself just roam a bit more widely. I've got a couple of different collections on the boil, one of which is probably going to have more sort of traditional, a few things that are just set like with Victorian or historic settings. And I think I want to put those together maybe in their own collection. And the others are going to be probably quite similar to municipal gothic, but there's a slightly wider range of settings and themes. Um, it was under the working title A New Theory of Haunting which I was really delighted by and then somebody published a book called A Theory of Haunting so I can't use that now so I'll think of something else yeah hopefully I think I've got something like I want at least 12 stories and I've got something like 10 that are in a reasonable shape so I'm just Monday and Wednesday night plugging away at it around a full time job but I will get there Um, and did you want to 
tell people where they can find your stuff as well? Yeah, probably the best place to find me these days, now Twitter's kind of dead, is on my website, which is precastreinforced.co.uk, as in precast reinforced concrete. Um, and I'm also on, like every other social network that's going at the moment, I'm on Blue Sky and Mastodon and Instagram and LinkedIn. I think stop looking after that. I'm probably on a few more, but they're the only ones that I'm any good on. So come and find me. And Municipal Gothic, if people want to buy that? the uh, You can now get it all over the place because it's um, an ebook and a print on demand, which is available through people like Waterstones and so on. But actually, the, the source is Amazon, unfortunately, because they're super easy. They make publishing super easy. So yeah, it's available there uh, primarily as a, a Kindle ebook. I always have to point out at this point, you don't need to have a Kindle to read Kindle ebooks. You can do it on your phone which is one of those great life hacks. I have a copy of Nairn's London by Ian Nairn on my phone, which means it's much better than having the paperbacks. When I'm in London and I see an interesting building, I can quickly look it up and go, oh, I can find out what he said. So uh, Kindle eBooks on your phone is my top tip for, for guidebooks as well. Thanks very much to Ray for his time and to you for listening. If you like this episode, the previous two episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. The first one is on G.A. Smith, the early Ho filmmaker, and the second on the Brighton-based experimental filmmaker Jeff Keane. You can email me at at thecineclub at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at cineclubblog, Instagram at cineclubblog, and on Substack at cineclub.substack.com. That's also the link for the blog and where you can find in the podcast episodes on the blog you'll also find show notes for this episode including some links to ray's work and other things we mention thanks again this is the cine club podcast i'm joe tindall